Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. All over the place, it really calls on that solidarity and not just friends and colleagues checking in on one another. Even landlords are going to have to forego the profits they normally make to help out people who are going to struggle to make ends meet. Checking on the health of our cities and their people is more important now than ever. On today's show, we check in with our staff and correspondents in New York, Toronto, Tokyo, Hong Kong and Milan to see how their urban environments and their lives have changed since the ramping up of precautions surrounding the COVID-19 virus. That's coming up right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Well, we'll start in New York, where on Tuesday I caught up with America's editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, to see how the Big Apple is faring. Let's listen in. You know, it's quite easy, I think, when you're kind of holed up working at home to sort of lose a bit of perspective and sort of obsessively check the news and tune into press conferences being given by leaders, you know, not just in the US, but the same is happening in the UK. When you step out the the door, you get a sense of reality. You know, you realise that life to some extent does continue as normal but it certainly feels quieter you know what new york city's like it's so noisy normally there's so much traffic you can always hear sirens and police cars and it certainly feels quieter obviously i'm here in brooklyn which is where i live not in manhattan but the images and stories that friends are telling who've been there is, you know, that it's much quieter, you know, Times Square, a shadow of its former self. And then, of course, the fact that changes have started to kick in. Bars and restaurants have now closed. And so the majority of people are working from home here. It's been a little while that museums took a decision to close, you know, the same for cinemas, some of those things happening in the UK as well. But, you know, at the weekend when the sun was out, a lot of people who I think were getting a bit stir-crazy from being in their apartments, and you know that apartments in, in New York City can be pretty small, needing to get out and do something. And so a lot of people in the park, I'm not sure I managed on my run because, you know, you're funneled into sort of lanes for running or cycling on the asphalt that rings Prospect Park in Brooklyn. I'm not sure I quite managed to social distance myself when I was running. It it was just, yeah, interesting. It was only about 14 degrees or something, but I've never seen the park so packed in winter in my entire life. So that was kind of interesting to see people who clearly needed to be doing something with their lives. And has it changed your feeling already about the city? You say actually many things feel normal, but you said that strange sentence, you know people who have been to Manhattan, you know, we're all getting penned into smaller parts of our cities and feeling that public transport is something we don't really want to engage with. Does New York feel a bit different to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously you sometimes... You know, we've been to the supermarket and seen that some things are missing. Some people clearly get a bit panicked in these situations and try and stock up on stuff. So those are the kind of obvious things. It's a different mentality. I mean, it's kind of, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK, suddenly your social life grounds to a halt and the things you had planned to do change. I mean, the nice thing is, you know, the solidarity, hearing about 
I'm in touch, you know, on email, speaking to people who have companies who are encouraging you to make food donations or just, you know, people checking up on you, you know, friends, family, former colleagues, just, you know, sending text messages. So, you know, that's a nice thing. I think there's that sense that people are coming together and I I guess a certain sense of solidarity. But, you know, given the fact that everything's shut down, people's plans have changed. And so that obviously affects the city the fact that you know there's so many people here in new york who work in the hospitality industry in the food and beverage industry or even in the tourism industry look new york city is a place that around about now lots of people would be planning to visit as the weather starts to get warmer and that's obviously going to be affected so the economic implications will be something to watch and you know all those sort of casual workers i guess people who do shift work for restaurants and actually earn pretty good wages doing it who in this space of a short amount of time suddenly discover that they won't have a job so i think all over the place it really calls on that solidarity and not just like i said before you know like friends and colleagues checking in on one another but also you know big business is going to have to step up and even landlords are going to have to forego the profits they normally make to help out people who are going to struggle to make ends meet. So hopefully the positive of this is seeing some decent human behaviour and people sort of really stepping up for people in need when times get a bit tough. Well, Ed, we're going to check in with you over the coming days and weeks uh, here on The Urbanist. We want to follow how the city responds and your your engagement with the city and, and how it begins to change. And hopefully we can come back in a matter of weeks to hear about some positive news. But for the moment, thank you very much for joining us, Ed, and take care. Thank you. Later that day, I also spoke with our Toronto Bureau Chief, Thomas Lewis, to get an idea of how Canada was faring in comparison to their neighbours to the south. Well, it's quite interesting, Andrew, actually, because when the first outbreaks were being reported in Wuhan, there were some quite early cases noted in Toronto right at the start of the story, given that there were very old and long-standing Chinese populations in cities like Vancouver and Toronto. After that initial wave, though, however, things did sort of flatline slightly and now Toronto is a city effectively in lockdown as of 8.30 on Tuesday morning when a state of emergency was declared by the provincial governor of Ontario, Doug Ford. He announced that restaurants, bars, communal areas like gyms, cinemas, theatres would all have to close until the end of the month. One caveat he did put in to that was that restaurants would be allowed to stay open but only on a takeout and delivery basis. I think there's a nod there looking at other blanket closures in other cities that have happened so far, noting just how hard this is hitting small independent sort of eateries and restaurants particularly. So yes, it's a very, very quiet place. Schools have been closed for about a week already here. But now that a lot of the businesses are following suit, there's really very few people out in the streets at all. Cities work because we have connections with people and we see the the guy who runs the local store, the, you know, the woman we meet in the deli. When all of those things are stripped away and you're asked to limit your social contact, how has Toronto changed for you in the past few days? Well, it's interesting. I live very close to a very small bakery that has been running maybe for about two or three years at this point. And at the end of last week, there were big runs on the supermarkets, the big box supermarkets, as elsewhere, 
we've seen in other cities. And I thought I'd pop in and see if I could get some bread there. And they were absolutely sold out. And I asked them how busy they'd been. And they said that, you know, people have really been coming and they haven't been sort of stock buying. They've been buying one or two loaves or jars of sort of honey or things like that, aware that other people will need things too. And I feel as though Toronto, especially when you get into the neighbourhoods, Toronto is long regards itself as a city of neighbourhoods where the sense of community is very important and very strong. That people are going to mass buy toilet paper and things at the big box supermarkets, but in terms of the essentials, they are very aware, I think, that it's the small Portuguese grocery or the Italian restaurant that makes its own pasta sauce or whatever it might be, that they will need support and they can offer what you need in this time of crisis too. And I think we're seeing a lot of people springing up with quite interesting ideas of how to make sure people aren't totally cut off from the world around them. So there's a, a group of student doctors, for example, who have just mobilised within the past few days a group of volunteers to go and help practising doctors who are obviously working around the clock to go and do grocery shopping for them, to go and babysit for their children because the schools are closed. And it really is quite moving, actually, that people are just sort of mobilising quite independently without being told to do so by the government, fully realising that there are people in quite serious situations in a really in a time that nobody, I think, has really experienced before can think of anything that was equivalent to this before really. One of the interesting things was your Prime Minister's wife she uh, contracted COVID-19 and I believe is still in isolation. Did that help get the story out as it were in Canada? I think it did Andrew. I think the fact that the Prime Minister's office was very quick to be very open about the fact that Sophie Gregoire Trudeau the Prime Minister's wife had returned from a visit to London in the UK with flu-like symptoms and then very quickly got tested and then it was very quickly after that revealed that she had tested positive. I think it did cast a very sharp light that this was a very real situation and I think for Justin Trudeau who is still in a period of self-isolation and is briefing the press and is speaking to his cabinet from the Prime Minister's official residence, the Rideau Cottage in Ottawa. I think there is a sense of sort of visibility from Trudeau, even if sometimes the messages are a little bit mixed. But I think there's this sense that there's a a, a realisation that, well, this is very real and I am being responsible at this from Trudeau's point of view, but I am going to be in openness in touch with you all, if you like, to the Canadian people, even in this extraordinary time. So I think the outbreaks here in Canada, scientists here are telling us, haven't come anywhere near to started peaking yet. So I think that kind of idea of being sort of open and in contact with the people is really something a lot of Canadians are very appreciative of at the moment. And just finally, tell me when this lockdown finally ends, when hopefully in the coming months we return to city life that we love, what are the one or two things you realise that you love about Toronto that make you think it's home and that you will probably regret not being able to do at this time as we head into spring? There are a few things, I think, Andrew. I think what is amazing about Toronto is that, you know, it's experienced several crises, you know, in it's it's a relatively young city if we're looking at the big major sort of urban hubs around the world, but it's really got such a strong track record of people just really swinging together 
when times require it. So I think in this time, you're seeing that sort of everywhere. People are offering to go and drive and go and get groceries or going to, you know, just check on elderly neighbours, putting postcards through the door. And I think this kind of idea of sort of community is quite a strong card for Toronto anyway. I suppose personally what I'll miss is this, you know, the idea of being in spaces where sort of surprises happen, I guess. You know, it's very famous for its music venues. Many of them are slightly ad hoc, but kind of the fun and the camaraderie that comes with that is pretty magic. Obviously, those venues are closed at the moment, but I think that's a real strong suit of Toronto's that you have these places where spontaneity can happen. And obviously, in a time like this, there is no spontaneity, really. So that's something I think that I miss at the moment. And I think many Torontonians miss as well. Well, Thomas, we're going to stay in touch with you and all our bureau chiefs and correspondents around the world over the coming months because we want to know what happens in your city. But for now, greetings from everyone here in London and stay safe. You too, Andrew. Thank you. Yesterday, I was able to grab a moment with Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief, Fiona Wilson. She told me about how Japan might be starting to come up for air after a very nervous time across Asia. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Two weeks. It sort of feels like another world, doesn't it? Because it's changed so much. I think Japan has really adjusted to this new reality. Children are not going to school. The museums, zoos closed. They've stayed closed. They were supposed to reopen this week, but they've just stayed closed. And, you know, if you look at the museum websites, they're saying we're staying closed until the government tells us otherwise. Baseball season has been delayed, which is big news in Japan. Uh, big sumo tournament at the moment. That's be you know, no audience for that. You know, even uh, tax which has to be submitted mid-March, has been delayed. So there are changes, but I think generally people are very calm here and people wear masks here if they have a cold anyway. So seeing a lot of masks on the street is not that alarming. That's quite standard. Of course, you're seeing more than usual. And one of the big things, of course, is cherry blossom season has just started and that should be a time when millions of people are picnicking outside. And they've really been clamping down on that and said no, please don't do that. So it'll be a sort of distant viewing this year, I think. And tell me that the shops, the bars, restaurants here in London, where I'm speaking to you from, obviously, that you know we're going into a strange phase where you're told not to go to these places, but they haven't been told to shut. So some places are taking the decision that it's wise to shut up, and other places are trying to tick over. But if you went to your local pub, your local izakaya, is that still open? Are the restaurants open? Are the department stores open? They are still open, actually. I mean, You know, you see hand sanitizer absolutely everywhere. People are quite good about social distancing. And one thing you are noticing is that shop hours have been reduced here. So shops are opening later and closing earlier. And certain things like the kaiten sushi, the sushi that goes around on a conveyor belt, that's been stopped. Nobody's doing that at the moment. It's considered, you know, too dangerous as it goes past people who are sitting right in front of it. So they've stopped that. You know, people are trying to carry on. Cafes are still open. I think what you really notice is just numbers are down. So many people are working from home now. Teleworking, which was never a thing in Japan, has become a huge thing now. So generally it's quieter, fewer people on the streets. And, you know, restaurants are definitely quieter. But people are going out and about. Where we are in Shibuya, we've got coffee shops around us. Our closest coffee shop, which you know, is busy. That's still busy. I have to say I'm sitting outside if I go there. 
And, you know, these places are sort of community beacons as well. So we're all kind of keeping in touch, waving. Some of the guys from another coffee shop came by yesterday to check on us, say, you know, everything going okay, and they dropped off a little gift. And, you know, there is a nice feeling around this community. People are kind of looking out for each other. But you definitely notice partly as well because there are almost no tourists now. And they really clamp down on visits from China and South Korea. And they usually make up half the tourist numbers to Japan. So that's been a huge change. You really, really notice that. The streets are just generally much quieter. Japanese people are known for being meticulously clean. You go into a restaurant, you're given a towel, you wash your hands, you wipe your hands. Now, there's a few reasons that people think that the rates of infection have been slowed in Japan. Maybe this is one of them. Maybe there's not enough testing. But that cleanliness thing about the hand sanitizer, in a way, many Japanese people are kind of doing that stuff anyway, aren't they? Yeah, I think that's so true. I mean, it's really normal here. People are really sort of fastidious about washing their hands, cleaning their hands before they eat. Anyway, it's obviously been ramped up a lot now. I think also, you know, the sort of culture of kissing people when you see them, you know, that's not such a thing here. So, you know, the sort of old style way of giving someone a bow, it kind of makes sense at the moment. You know, not, no physical contact. I haven't seen that many kind of elbow bumping situations. <laughs> but, you know, generally people are kind of keeping a distance and, you know, they're being sensible. I think People understand that it's for the greater good. You don't really get the sort of people who say, no, we're not going to be told what to do. We're going to continue our lives and do whatever we want. Generally, people have said, OK, this is the advice. We'll stick to it. Whether people agree with that or not, you know, that is the way people tend to be here. So I think generally, if you go around the streets, people are being very respectful. They're being quite careful. And of course, there have been incidents that, have, you know, you see on Twitter where somebody has coughed and other people have got very cross with them if they don't have a mask on. So there's a kind of social pressure to wear a mask. And in some situations, I got in a taxi the other day and the driver asked me to put on a mask, actually, which I didn't mind. I understood, you know, taxi drivers feel a bit vulnerable. You know, people come in and out of the taxi all day and they don't know where they've been. And of course, I understand they, you know, I then spoke to him in Japanese and he said, oh, you live here. And we had a nice conversation. But initially he was a little bit anxious and thought, help. Has this woman come from Europe? You know, and this is, of course, this is the anxiety that comes in and, I understand for taxi drivers that is a concern. And tell me, finally, Fiona, has the city changed for you in recent weeks? You know, obviously, your kids are at home, things are shut, many kind of precautions are naturally coming into play, but do you find yourself travelling less across the city, cautious? Are there things you already miss from a month or two ago? You know, I have really stopped travelling on the subway bit embarrassed to admit that but I you know that's just one of my precautions I felt like I just didn't particularly want to be on a crowded subway train I think generally the trains are much quieter public transport's much quieter because so many people are working at home and you know one of the feelings I got was it really reminded me of the period after the earthquake in 2011 when Japan went into a kind of semi-shutdown mode and it was quite hard psychologically I think that in some ways was tougher psychologically because it really felt, you know, Japan was on its own and, and facing this terrible situation with the, you know, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. And Japan went into this sort of semi-darkness in a funny way, particularly Tokyo. And funnily enough, at the moment, I've slightly been reliving that feeling of that things are just not quite right. They're not quite normal. You know, it's strange. There's incredible weather in Japan at the moment. The sun is shining. The cherry blossom is coming out. So there's a sort of contradiction there. But for now, our lives are different. And I think some people feel they'll need to be even more different. I think some people are slightly concerned that Japan is getting a bit too complacent because the numbers haven't exploded, the numbers of infections. And some people feel that maybe Japan needs to 
really remind people about the importance of social distancing again just to make sure that people aren't having those uh, cherry blossom picnics you know and obviously looking ahead to the olympics that's going to be the next big decision i think well fiona thank you for joining us we want to check in with all of our bureau chiefs across the coming weeks because i think as you navigate this story it's good to see signs of resilience and hope and determination from all these places around the world so thank you for joining us fiona I also had a moment to speak with James Chambers, who's our bureau chief in Hong Kong and also Asia editor. And he was on his return from a holiday to a city that is proposing new quarantines for incoming travellers due to a recent resurgence in cases. Despite a rather shaky phone line, we managed to get an update. Let's have a listen. This week, the government brought in a new rule in Hong Kong that means that anyone arriving in Hong Kong from abroad whether you're a foreigner, you're a Hong Konger, or you're a resident like myself, you have to self-isolate for 14 days. That means when I get back to Hong Kong this weekend, I'm going to have to stay in my apartment for 14 days. I won't be able to leave. The government is saying that they will have people who back on you and message you every day because you're meant to be taking temperature readings and reporting those to the government. This has all come about because there is a fear that Hong Kong is in trouble with the second wave with the coronavirus. The third wave is people coming from China and then it's spreading locally. But the feeling is that is now being contained. But the worry now is that because the virus has spread to Europe and the US, there are people who are going to be visiting Hong Kong from those areas and we're going to see a kind of a second spike. Already this week, Hong Kong has seen the biggest number of cases. Uh, we're still not talking about large numbers, but that has caused another panic and um, people are scared of boring now, very much are shutting down the airport. That was James Chambers there, who's Monocle's Hong Kong bureau chief and Asia editor. Finally yesterday, I managed to check in with our Milan correspondent, Ivan Cavallo. Ivan has been keeping us abreast of all the changes going on in Italy, a country that is serving as a warning to other European nations at this unsure time. We have a certain things that we're allowed to do. So the, the government has a document which you can download, which allows you to do the following things. You can go out and get your groceries, the pharmacy. You can take your dog for a walk. This has become a bit of a bone of contention about how long people go out with their dog, and they prefer that you stay in your local area. Parks have been closed because they found that with the weather being warmer now, people were were going out and lingering a bit more, and they want you to go out individually. So if you go to the grocery store, just one person from a family needs to go. There's also uh, newsstands are open, which is a, a positive sign because you can you have right to the press. And so this is something that you could still do, which is a, a great ritual, along with the cafe, which are now closed and restaurants. But you can go to the newsstand and get your copy. But again, they're trying to convey to people this importance about staying as much as possible indoors because of this virus being very difficult to track down and, and to find out who actually is infected because a lot of people don't show any symptoms. So they want to try to keep as many people indoors as much as possible, which of course is, is not ideal if you're if you've been cooped up for a week or even longer now and we have several weeks to go. But uh, this is what they prefer. So if, if you have a balcony or say a courtyard, which is where our, our kids once in a while we let uh, run around in just a small courtyard to get a bit of exercise, because obviously for children it's a bit difficult. But you know, these are the restrictions that, that we have now. And they're talking about maybe making it a bit more to try to clamp down. I, I hate to use that word, but they're trying to get people to, to move about as, not as much because they're concerned about these breakouts and because it's hard to detect. Uh, and so uh, we may see more stringent sort of controls with police and 
possibly the army. I mean, the army has been patrolling Milan for for many years for anti-terrorism, and so you'll see a jeep uh, driving down the street. So that's sort of the the snapshot of what of what we have here uh, in Milan. And what's it done to your relationship or your perception of Milan? Because it's a city of thoroughfares of you know all Italian cities engineered for for walking for town squares of course lots of cars but you know every Italian city invites you out onto the street this notion of everybody being locked up does it feel like you know you're kind of a <laughs> seeing a cake in a cake shop window everything is a bit alluring just beyond reach yeah it's a bit difficult clearly Italy is known for piazzas and people going out for the passeggiata the stroll in the parks and so that is not easy we have a playground in front of our house, which the kids always go to. Uh, they have sporting events and whatnot. We have discovered our, our balcony. It's not a very big balcony, but through the balcony, we've discovered some of our, our neighbors. And this is something which I think you'll hear a lot about in, in the coming days, is that in, in apartment buildings, a lot of the times we're very busy with our lives in our cocoons, and we don't really have a lot of time to get to know our neighbors. And we've had the chance to sort of talk to some neighbors. They've taken pictures of us. So we've gotten to exchange uh, phone numbers. You always sort of acknowledge your neighbor when you're out there, whereas in the past it was sort of you pretended that they weren't there. And so that's kind of a curious thing. And then, of course, everyone has seen around the world the singing that people have been doing in Italy on the balconies, the applauding at a certain hour to cheer on and applaud the, the efforts of the nurses and the doctors in the hospitals. But yeah, you know, it's it is a bit of a challenge. I mean, if you have a balcony, you're fortunate. If you have a courtyard, you're you're, you're lucky. But it's something where feeling confined and caged in is is a challenge. And and for some people, you know, it's going to take a bit more effort. And finally, Ivan, it sounds though the city has found its resilience or begins to find its resilience. It's dark days, but do you feel that Milan has the ability to bounce back once this passes? I think, you know, this is a very cosmopolitan, resilient city, a very industrial, entrepreneurial city, because you have to remember that Milan is at the heart of the economic engine of northern Italy, the most European city on the peninsula. And I think in recent years after the World's Fair, Milan has gotten a boost of confidence. And I think with the mayor, Beppe Sala, I think a leader, which other places we don't see leadership at this stage. But I think with him, the Milanese feel confident that we can get back Moving again, you know, that's, there's a lot of industry here. There is uh, obviously the fashion, furniture uh, sectors as well. And so I think people are obviously very keen to get moving in. I, I don't see that being a problem. It's just sort of the length of this confinement is obviously going to be a bit difficult. But the Milanese are, are quite resilient and quite entrepreneurial. So I'm hoping for, for good things. Well, Ivan, it's amazing to talk to somebody who's probably in the toughest situation of all the correspondents and the editors that we've spoken to today and who has, I don't know, the best kind of message about coming together and and how people will be resilient at this time. Great to speak to you. We want to stay in touch with you over the coming days and weeks and see what happens. But thank you very much for joining us here on The Urbanist. Well, there you have some views and thoughts from just a few of the people who work for Monocle around the world. I'm sitting in our London studio. Many of our staff are now working from home. But we want to keep this show and Monocle 24 going and connecting people. We feel at this time it's more important than ever that we have a forum for people to tell their stories. Cities are important. We we know their vitality makes us feel alive. We know that our lives and our stories unfold in them in extraordinary ways. And as we're shuttered in our homes... It's scary. We have to kind of think, will our cities bounce back? 
But, you know, across all the shows that we've done here at Monocle, we've talked about resilience. And there is a resilience in cities, their ability to bounce back. Again, I sit in London, a city that has been ravaged in all sorts of extraordinary ways, but has come back. And we have to remember, the city won't be flattened. The buildings will still be there. We will lose many people that we care about and love. But I have a feeling that in the months and years ahead, we will look at this as a terrible time, a moment where perhaps our confidence was tested. But you know what? We came through, and on the other side, we appreciated even more the ability to be surrounded by extraordinary people, to do those simple things, go to a restaurant, to push open the pub door and see friends' smiling faces, to hang out in a street, to shake hands, to rub shoulders, to look at art surrounded by thousands of people, to have a full diary of events across our cities. This is a moment for us all to pause and think about why we love the place that we live in. And for me, London has been the place where my story has unfolded. I came here to go to university. I met my partner here. I have a dog here. I have amazing work colleagues. And it feels a testing time, but I am not going to give up without a fight. And I think that we will come through this with our values tested, but intact, and hopefully a little bit polished too. But from everyone at The Urbanist, we're going to do our best to stay on air, stay connecting you. But we're thinking of everybody around the world. And you can always email me at at monocle.com. We want to know what you're going through and what you're thinking and what your plans are for your city when it does return to the place that you love. But for now, from everyone here on The Urbanist, thank you. Today's show, well, it was put together and produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. And David is also the editor of the show. We're still going to play you out with a song this week. Here's Health with Strange Days. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Yeah.